that. It's moving. All right. So uh, it is uh, 7.09 by my watch. I appreciate you guys getting here early. There are uh, probably some others who will be joining us tonight. There are at least three, possibly four, who have said they will be joining us, but let me know they cannot be here tonight, um, which is kind of the way these classes go. But um, from now on, from tonight I wanted to be out there and point people in a little bit who, who didn't really know where we are. But from now on, we're going to start as close to seven on the nose as possible. And I totally understand Sometimes it's hard to be here at 7 if you guys are working or you're stuck in one of the freeways or something like that. Don't worry about it. Get here when you can get here. Uh, feel free to bring uh, water, bring coffee, bring uh, whatever you bring. Um, but uh, I, I have no heartburn even over bringing uh, a bag of food. If you are coming off of work, you haven't had a chance to grab your dinner. And uh, if you don't mind the indigestion, I don't mind it. So feel free to do that um, because... Again, it's, it's not always easy to get here at this time of the day. Um, let's see. Today is an introductory class. Therefore, I don't assume any work on your part. And a little weird for me, I'm normally over here at 6.30, 6.40 on a class like this, but uh, we actually, the elders and I were on... Uh, a conference call, so we had my phone and my computer over there even when I was back and forth here. Uh, they were still using it over there, and uh, so I'm a little bit uh, behind what I would normally do, but that's not going to be the norm. Um, pardon? Well, that's cool, because I mean, you do sort of got to, you know, Bible says kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, appreciate that. That way you don't feel forced into it, right? Okay, so this is a uh, class on parenting. Everybody here for the right thing? Okay. Uh, oh, stink. I already wrote that up there. So I guess I kind of blew that anyway. Um, I always like you to introduce yourselves, and uh, this is the first time I've taught one of these exegetical classes since December... 2nd of 2014. Um, one or two of you were in the room when I did that. Yeah, it's been a little while, huh? Um, so I'm excited about it because I love doing this. Uh, I, would, I would do this full time if I could. Uh, not for college, but for a church. If I, get, if I get somebody to let me do it, you guys have to carry all the other stuff. Um, but what we're going to be doing, as I've talked about a little bit on Sunday morning, is a combination of studying the Book of Romans. Um, we're not going to be going, we're not going to be taking real slow approach, <laughs> because we're only meeting once a week. We have some time parameters. Basically, that's 7 to 8.30. I will normally end at 8.30, period. Uh, the reason for that is uh, some of our uh, participants will be involved, uh, or their children will, at least in TNT. Um, and the other uh, thing that we will bend to TNT for, because we want that ministry to be strong, is the first Tuesday of the month, we will not be meeting as a class. So I'll give you a schedule, but every first Tuesday, 
um, because the TNT is designed for uh, the kids, the parents, grandparents, and anyone else who would like to be a part of it. It's an intergenerational experience, and um, I don't want to be competing with that. Uh, the, the small groups that meet on the property on Tuesdays have the same uh, policies, so we, we try to be consistent with that. Um, given that, we've got about 11 or 12 weeks before Memorial Day, believe it or not, uh, once you take that out. Um, and that doesn't, there's no break for uh, Easter or anything like that, so, because Easter's not on a Tuesday night. So I'll be here anyway. If you guys can't be, then be back when you can. Uh, we will be recording these. They will be uh, normally by noon on Wednesday posted on our website and our app. Um, go under classes, under Romans, and um, it should have week one, week two, week three, or dates, or both. should have both, but I don't know if they're going to. Um, we are, um, again, just starting to do this, so I'm not going to promise you it will be by noon tomorrow, uh, almost certainly by the end of the day tomorrow, but be a little patient. Um, and from now on, if you can't make it on a given night, we don't want you feeling like, okay, I guess I'm, I'm just going to get behind or miss things. Um, you can fill in. I, I don't rehearse what I do for a recording. So the recording is a recording of this, of, of our interactions, of whatever we do. Sometimes that means there's some silence as we're waiting for you know, people to think of uh, questions or answers or whatever. Um, but it, it's going to be this class. Um, I would like you to introduce yourselves to one another. If you would, um, we always, uh, names, that's usually not terribly threatening. And um, what else? Oh, yes, I'll fall back on my, uh, my standard with, because a lot of you haven't done my standard, and that is the city of your birth. So name, if you would, and city of your birth. If you don't know the city of your birth, try the state. If you don't know the state, uh, the country, um, hemisphere, I don't know, narrow it down, whatever works. Don't need to know the hospital, okay? But some of us can tell you, but whatever. You there, who are you? for a Midwestern guy, too. Yeah. I'm not real sure why, but there you go. Okay. Okay. Well, on behalf of those of us from, you know, over there, uh, to those of you who are Californians, we apologize. 
uh, all of the invasion, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, I'm Randy, and I was going to say I had everybody beat, but me, I think you have me beat. Uh, I was born in Wiesbaden, Germany, also Air Force, and uh, actually I can tell you the hospital because it was Wiesbaden Hospital in Wiesbaden, Germany. So there you go. All right, uh, we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about each other as we go on. However, this is not a small group. Uh, we're not going to be spending half an hour, 45 minutes on prayer requests, and we're not going to be doing a lot of socializing and things like that in here because we have such limited time. And I will say, um, this is not a new thing. I've said this all along. If you're not part of a small group, I strongly encourage you to do it. And frankly, if you've only got time for one activity, uh, I encourage that over this. Because in the small groups you get some study, but you also get time with prayer with others, and you get that relationship building time. And those are important things. Um, so uh, what we're going to be doing is going to generally follow a, uh, a basic outline after tonight. And that is when you come in, there will be a little bit of an outline here, uh, not as much, because it's all going to be basically about a passage of Scripture you will know in advance, and hopefully you will have studied in advance, because I will be handing study guides out to you, and those study guides will be uh, foundational for what we cover. Excuse me. Now, I'm not going to come in every night and go over everything in the study guide. Why would I do that? You guys can do that on your own. Um, so what I'm going to do after we um, open in prayer, we're going to pray in just a moment, um, and ask the Lord to guide us, is, and then I'm going to turn to you guys and say, do you have any questions? And I'm basing that on your study. Is there anything from this passage that you want to make sure that we focus on? Maybe it's not a question. Maybe it's something uh, that just so struck you, and Romans can very easily provide that in a number of different places, that you just, you just like us to zero in and spend some time camping out on that. Um, maybe it's one of the words. Um, I will have a list of words I'll be asking you to look up um, in terms of what the Greek word Paul uses is. And if you don't know how to do that, we'll go over that some, and I'm going to go over it briefly tonight, but uh, I'm available to spend as much time as it is needed with anybody to make sure that you know how to do it. It's, honestly, give me an hour, and I can, I can guarantee you you can pull that one off, uh, whether you read Greek letters or not. It's, it's not that complicated because a lot of people have put a lot of work into resources giving us that background. Um, and I think it's very important to understand that because um, as most Christians, I don't believe a given translation is inspired. But I do believe the Holy Spirit inspired the author of those documents and what they put out. So since we have very reasonable derivatives of the originals. Of course, there are no originals of the book of Romans. The actual thing Paul wrote, we don't have that. But uh, we have extremely good evidence that what we've got is what he had put together. So uh, we're going to spend some time on that. We're going to spend some time on background. We're going to spend some time on customs. Uh, we're going to spend some time on application of it. What, what does this mean? Um, and the more you do on your own, the more you're going to get out of this. OK? 
okay? And I'll tell you flat out, if you do nothing on your own, you're welcome. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say you can't be here. Um, but you will not get much out of it because it's designed not only, again, as a presentation, but as kind of a lab for Bible study for us. Okay. That said, let's go to the Lord, ask him to guide us, and then uh, dive into some of the introductory stuff. Father, we do thank you for giving us this evening, giving us the time to be together. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do this study and for your word, for the fact that thousands of years ago you, you worked with people knowing that 100 years later, 1,000, 2,000, here we are, we would need this and that it applies to all of us. Lord, we stand in awe of that. And we ask that you would give us the guidance and the wisdom to be able to get into that word, understand your word, and live your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we need to start talking then. Let's see if I've got my... Yeah, we're, we're moving along. Um, two things I'm going to do real quick before I dive too much into that. I'm going to be sending electronic copies of everything that I distribute to you. So tonight, there's some resource documents and also, of course, the study guides. And um, I'll hand the study guides out on one week for the following week. But I will also send them electronically. Some of you like to keep them that way. And if you're not here, uh, then you'll get it whether you physically show up or not. If you sign on this page and give me very, very clearly written uh, your email address. Because if you flop it at all, um, computers are very unforgiving and I might be in trouble. If I've already got in the database two or three email addresses for you, that's cool. However, that doesn't tell me which one you want me sending it to. So please, again, write it down. Um, beginning tonight, I will put together the email list for this class send uh, the copies out of what I'm going to give out tonight, and then every week you're automatically going to get those. If you don't want to get those, don't sign up. It's not a problem. Okay? After tonight, I will be doing the same thing, except unless you haven't given me your email, uh, I'm not going to ask for that. It's just going to be sort of a sign-in uh, way of me knowing who all is here. Okay? So if you would start that and then pass it around. <laughs> and as I've said already, one of the things that I like to do is ask questions of your questions. This is a, a class on uh, the Bible and explicitly the book of Romans. Um, I would be very interested in knowing if there's anything in particular you're coming with that you want to learn or explore with regard to the book of Romans. Uh, clearly, that may not happen tonight because it's going to take us weeks and weeks and weeks to go through the Book of Romans. But I will write all those down, and I will be checking them. And as we come to the passages, I'll make sure I try to in incorporate those. So is there anything that I should be keeping? Let's talk about Bible study. For some of you, this is going to be review. Uh, hold your breath. We'll get through it. 
but it is important that we get caught up and we be all on the same page. How many of you have heard my hot dog uh, presentation? Okay. Yeah. You, you, if, you've, if, you know what if you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you haven't. Um, let's talk about the Bible. The number one resource for studying the Bible is the Bible. That makes sense, right? Uh, what Bibles are you guys reading out of? What translations? NIV, NIV. NIV. Okay, King James and New American Standard. Okay, that technically, by the way, is, is the New American Standard updated. They did update it in 94. So if you guys are wondering, the, what we pass out on Sunday mornings is the 94 version. Almost no difference. Uh, but they, they upgraded or updated a little bit. And ESV, okay. Um, if you come in and you, you forget to bring uh, your own and you want to have a paper text, a lot of people use the electronic versions in here, and that's fine. But there's stacks of them over there, and that's going to be the ESV. Okay, it's the English Standard Version, and that is what uh, Edmund uses with the youth group. Okay, any others? Okay, so obviously there's decisions that have had to be made. Some of you are using more than one. I always, when I study, not necessarily read, but when I study, um, and that's actually most of the time for me, I, I use more than one. And uh, the reason is because translations are not all the same. You've noticed that, of course, right? King James. Now, King James, uh, the number one thing about the King James is it's 500 years old. So uh, the language itself is going to be different. Not the language it's translating, but what it's translated into. English 500 years ago, uh, and by the way, English versus American, there's a difference there too. Now when you're, when you're looking academic, and most translations are being somewhat academic, that difference is going to be played down. So you're not going to see near as big a difference between an English translation and an American translation as you would if you listen to BBC and listen to a talk show or something and just normal vernacular. Because there's a lot of figures in speech and things like that that they're, they're not putting into the Bible. On the other hand, there are things that are going to be different. So anytime English Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, the King James itself, the New King James, are all English-based. Whereas the NIV, uh, CEV, um, certainly the NASB, um, <coughs> those are the big ones. There's probably another 500 or so of them, but those are the ones that are most read today. Those are American. So some of uh, the idiom, idiom is going to come through. Now, what's the difference on all of these translations and which ones should you use? For study, I encourage you to not give in to the temptation to only use one. So once again, how do you choose? And here's, here's where the hot dog comes in. We're talking translations. Anybody here bilingual? Okay. Japanese? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. So, Mia, may I assume that if you're translating Japanese into English, that there is not one English word for every one Japanese word? Is that correct? It's not correct, or it is correct? There's not one-to-one? 
There's more than one. That's what I'm getting at. And so a translator has a problem. Because a translator has to figure out which word to use to make it most understandable. And then translator has to ask themselves, well, what am I trying to get them to understand? So years ago, true story, which is why I've been telling this story now for well over 20 years, years ago, a couple of missionaries, um, one of them died, by the way, since the last time I told this story in one of these classes. About a year and a half ago, she had cancer and, and uh, got to go home. Um, they were missionaries who were fully supported by the church I served in Oregon. So when they came home on furlough, they basically became staff members. It was kind of a cool thing because you know, we got to get to know them very well. The church that supported them got to know them very well, built a lot of bridges for people to go over and do short-term trips, and, and yet we also got to have their wisdom and their experiences come across during that year that they were there. One of those years when they were in Oregon and uh, were uh, spending that one year of furlough, Excuse me. They had a guest. Now, when they were not in Oregon, they were in Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, they had been there. He's, he's still there um, 30 years or so now. Uh, so obviously a long time. They actually served on staff at the church in Oregon first and uh, been in ministry in the United States and then went over there. Um, so they had a guest who was from the uh, grasslands which they call the bush, but it's not bush, it's grasslands, uh, outside of Nairobi. And uh, this young man was a Kikuyu tribesman. So even though they have national boundaries in Africa, uh, the Africans still value the tribal uh, connections far more than the national ones. Um, so uh, he was not Kenyan. Uh, he was only Kenyan, sort of. He was Kikuyu. And Kikuyu were, and still are, a very large and very influential tribe. So he didn't speak English. He was working on it. In fact, he was in the country trying to decide whether he was going to uh, do graduate studies at Western Seminary in Portland. But um, in the meantime, he spoke, guess what? Kikuyu. Surprise, surprise. Now, had he been in Nairobi, he probably would have spoken English because in the big city, English was, was very dominant. But out there in the bush, no, they spoke Kikuyu. So Larry, the, the missionary, brings, um, I want to say the guy was Joseph, but I don't remember his name for sure. If I ever told you guys who've heard the story a name, I'm sure that was it. But it has skipped my mind now. Uh, this young man comes over, and Larry introduces him to us, and we said, hey, we'd love to spend some more time with you guys. Would you like to come over after the services uh, and have some just you know, relaxing time? We're going to have some hot dogs. Okay. So Larry now turns to this young man and says, we've been invited to their house after the worship service to eat and to have fellowship. They say it all of this in Kukuyu. And he said, we're going to be eating. And he has a decision to make, doesn't he? Because they don't have American hot dogs out in the bush in Kenya. They do have heat, and they do have dogs. 
So he's got to make a decision. He can be literal, and this would be a literal translation way over here on this side of the continuum, and say they've invited this over for hot dogs, only to use the Kikuyu words for that. At which point this gentleman, by the way, the Kikuyu tribesmen do not eat dogs. Not on the plate, okay? And so now he's kind of going to be squirming a little bit, and he's got this image built up in his head, and um, he's got to make a decision whether he wants to actually go do this. On the other hand, Larry could also make the decision to go to the other side of this continuum of translation and give the essence, if you will, but not the academic accurate. Um, there is meat in the bush. Usually it's a small deer, I think we would call them impala. And they do indeed make a kind of sausage out of it. And they do indeed have a form of bread. I don't know that we would recognize it as that, but that's what they have. So uh, he could use those terms and say, you know, we've been invited over for that. In which case, the guy might be really interested. Um, but of course, when he comes to my house, he's going to have a bit of a disappointment when he finds out what it is we're actually serving. Okay? So the translator has to make a choice between the actual literal, okay, and even that, there's different words for dog in different languages. There's different words for heat in different languages, right? And depending on the culture, those words can be significant. Or what in academic terminology is referred to as dynamic equivalence. And that's over here on this side of the continuum, not attempting to be literal, but attempting to give you a general sense that in your language and in your culture, you're going to understand. Now, this one can get extreme, and if it's like this far over, uh, most of us are never going to be able to get through it. It's going to feel so awkward because the grammar is going to be different, the, the vocabulary is going to be really stilted, uh, because there are more than one choice, and it's, it's just very hard to make it exactly the same. In the Greek language, the vocabulary itself is going to be different, but so is sentence structure in a lot of different places. And if we follow what, uh, what was it, Brian referred to it as the wooden translation uh, in the Greek class, um, and just read it that way, it comes out pretty weird. Okay? So even those translations that are considered more academic, like the New American Standard, is going to be kind of here, halfway on this side, not all the way. On the other hand, there's a lot of translations like the NIV, the ESV, the NKJV. The KJV attempted to be that and actually was not. Hold on just a second. As most of you will understand, I do have a uh, test results I'm waiting on and a doctor that may be calling me that I have to answer. So forgive me for not turning that off during this. Um, but those translations are going to be more dynamic equivalents. They're not all the way to the end of this in terms of understandability. What that is is not even a translation. How many of you have ever read a paraphrase? Okay. So a paraphrase is taking what Paul says in Romans and saying, what do I think that means? And how would I say that in American if I was going to say that? 
And so I'm, I'm not just translating words or even grammar. I'm translating concepts, and I'm translating culture, and I'm translating personality. I'm taking that and running it through me. Now, in the Jesus movement, when I came to the Lord, the big, big paraphrase was, those of you a little older, can you remember? No, good news for modern man is actually right about here. Today's English version is... Nope, the Living Bible. That's the one. The Living Bible is way over here. It is a paraphrase. Someone named Ken Taylor uh, actually paraphrased it for his children. It was originally written as bedtime stories for his children to paraphrase the Bible. And uh, he was an author and an editor. And so he kept what he wrote and uh, put it all together. And it became worldwide an amazing bestseller. The problem is, in many different passages, it bears very little resemblance to what the Bible actually says. Today's big paraphrase is what? The message. The message is written by, oh, what is the guy's name? Pardon? Gene Peterson. Um, Peterson was an author uh, breaking through and doing a lot of writing for leadership the same time I was back in the early 90s. Um, and he did exactly the same thing and put the Bible into his own words. Okay. Both of those men clearly say this is not a translation. Do not study out of this. The only reason for having this is to uh, provide readability and give you the general flow of what a, a given passage of Scripture is saying. So do that because hopefully it will hook you and then you will want to study more and actually get into a translation. Okay? Now I say both want to do that or both say that because I don't want to be perceived as trashing these guys. I am indeed going to trash, however, their products for the simple reason that virtually nobody does that. Most people who read the message read the message as the Bible and the only one that they use. Um, I still know people who've got the old uh, Living Bible, and they do the very same thing. Before that, by the way, uh, back in the 50s, was the Phillips version, which again, it's, and I've heard it called the Phillips translation. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. Excuse me. So, for the purpose of this class, I want to strongly encourage you not to go, uh, I'm not even sure of what, translation out there today would be this far over. Um, but definitely over here, we've got the paraphrases. Don't use them, please. Just don't. And uh, in, in terms of coming up with questions and so forth, don't, don't, don't. Because if you ask me what somebody means, what, what Gene Peterson means by something, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have time to study Gene Peterson. I got my hands full, full with the Bible. So I'm not going to spend time on something different, and it is something different. Do not, please, do not make the mistake that many preachers do of quoting those passages as though they're scripture. They're not. Okay? They're what somebody thinks scripture means. And they say that. They're, they're up front. They're honest about it. Um, you talked about Good News for Modern Man. That is a, a translation that's still being used, today's English version. And uh, Good News for Modern Man was a particular packaging of it. 
in a uh, paperback. I believe it was usually just New Testament, and it was a uh, a faux newsprint cover, and it was along with the uh, the Living Bible. It was the Jesus Freak Bible. Um, I've got two or three on my shelf still, including one that was, you can tell which one I used and which one I was given later and I kept as a sample. Um, it's got little stick figures illustrating things. It's really cool. <laughs> Excuse me. It's not really a bad translation. And it is right about here. It's not as accurate. It doesn't have as, as good an academic foundation as the New American Standard, uh, but it's better than, say, the NIV. And it kind of overlapped. The NIV actually drove it out of popularity because uh, when the NIV was first coming out, started, in fact, with the Gospel of John in the early 70s, um, immediately the people who loved the good news for modern man started reading the NIV instead. Okay. Here's, here's a, a reason why I keep that one around. How many of you know somebody who's Roman Catholic? Okay. Um, if you know me, you know I clearly do not believe the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. If I did, I would probably be Roman Catholic. Okay? I do have a master's degree from a Jesuit seminary, from the theology department of the Jesuit seminary. Uh, I know what they teach. I know what is official and what is not. Um, and I have studied with many, many Roman Catholics, both academically and here, where half the population considers themselves to be that at least. Um, and many times I hear things like, well, that's your Bible. Because I say, you know, I, I'm, what I'm teaching is coming from the Bible. So if what your church is teaching or somebody else is teaching something else, I'm not responsible for that one. I'm teaching this from the Bible, and I'll show you. And then I hear, well, but that's your Bible. Okay. The TEV, not the package of the Good News Modern Man, but the TEV, today's English version, there is a version with the imprimatur. When I say a version, that means not all of them have that. The one that has the imprimatur added the apocryphal books. Okay? And the apocryphal books, frankly, there's nothing particularly bad about them. I don't think they're inspired, but whatever. Um, the Roman Catholic Church didn't think they were inspired until Martin Luther said they weren't. And then they said, well, yes, they are, and had a, a giant uh, conclave and declared them to be inspired. Um, the bottom line is there is an imprimatur of the uh, cardinal and archbishop of San Francisco at the time. Uh, you, know, you know what imprimatur means? Imprimatur is a stamp uh, with the authority of that person that says, this is okay. And it is the, the same exact translation other than the apocryphal books being tucked in. So if you want to study with a Roman Catholic, and I mean, honestly, I don't mind using a Roman Catholic uh, translation either because most of them are fairly decent translations. The problem with them is there's enough of them that they run the same gamut as others. Excuse me, where some of them are quite good and some of them are pretty sloppy. And they may have gotten hold of one of the sloppy ones. So if you're wanting to do that, I recommend you go to today's English version. Um, go to a Catholic bookstore and look for today's English version with imprimatur. Or if you really rather not drive, go to Amazon because it's there. And you can pick one up very cheap and uh, you get rid forever of, yeah, but that's your Bible. 
and now you can study together. Okay. So for the purpose of this class, we're going to be trying to uh, do both, actually, and, and we'll look at, at both things. But I now, uh, two years ago when I was teaching this before, I was always going out of NIV. I have now gone back to New American Standard because I found myself so many times correcting the NIV out of frustration for what I was doing because it's over there. And so I'm going to be using New American Standard. The words I'm asking you to look up are from New American Standard, the English words. So if you're using an IV, ESV, whatever, um, you can do one of two things. You can either open that version and look and say, okay, what does this translation call that word, and then look it up. Or you can simply start with the New American Standard one. And I would recommend doing that because you're going to cut out uh, a little bit of time, okay? All right. To study, you need to do three things. You need to read it. You need to question it, okay? What does that word mean? Let's see. We've got some husbands in the room. My favorite illustration of this, right? Raise your hand if you're a husband. Okay. The Holy Spirit has commanded you and me through the Apostle Paul to love your wives. Right? Okay. So when you first read that word, you first read that, and you may have heard teaching on it by now, but when you first read that, did you know what that meant? See, most of us look at it and go, oh yeah, it means love. I know what love means. Really, what does it mean? And I thought, well, you know, because if you put 20 people together in a room and have them define love, they're going to have 20 different de definitions. In fact, if you get one of the real honking big English dictionaries, I love those things because they go into the background, the etymology of words, uh, it'll give you at least 20. And what most people do is they look them over, they pick the one they like, and say, well, it means that. Okay? Now, here's the problem. The word love never existed when Paul wrote Ephesians. So the one word we know he definitely didn't use and didn't mean is love. So what we need to do is asked because we've been commanded to do it, and apparently it's kind of significant, particularly if you read all those other places where Jesus said, for example, they'll know you're my, my disciple by your love for one another. Sounds pretty important, right? Okay, so I need to know what that is. So I'm questioning. I see the importance of it, and I need to know what that means. Forgiveness. Pretty important. We've been talking about that on Sunday morning. If I don't know what forgiveness means, I don't understand the gospel. I certainly can't grow in my relationship with the Lord according to Jesus' own parables. And I also can't share the gospel with others because I'm talking to them about the fact forgiveness is available to them and I don't even know what the word means. So I'm stuck in the same thing. What does that word mean? And I'm going to come up with what I think forgiveness means. And the problem is I'm going to use my understanding of the American definition of the English word. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus used a word whose meaning was well established. And it means something very different than what a lot of us think it means. And we don't understand the gospel until we understand that. So since it's such an important word, as we're reading, we might make a mental note that says, I, I probably ought to know what that means. So there's another one to look up. There might be others I, that after a while you just have fun with it. And the, the more you do this, frankly, some of you will be so turned off of it, you're simply not going to do it anymore. 
and hopefully most of you will get bit, and you'll find how fascinating the Word of God is, and you'll want to go in and dig those things out. You'll, you'll have other things that you'll run into. For example, if you're reading in 1 Corinthians, you're going to run into a passage where Paul basically is chewing the Corinthians out for not judging a man in the church. Anybody got any qualms about that? Does anything sound weird about that to you? Doesn't Jesus say not to do that? Matthew 7, first verse, don't judge, lest you be judged. Now wait a minute, Jesus said don't do it. Paul says, what's the matter with you? You're not doing that. Clearly implying they should be doing it. Are these passages contradicting one another? So if they're not, how do I know? Again, as I'm reading, that's another one of those things I need to be looking at to understand what is the Holy Spirit telling me. <laughs> Sometimes it's as simple as historical information. You read a name. You read a, 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 a reference. Jesus, uh, in one of the parables we'll be talking about in the next few weeks, makes reference to a couple of historical um, items that I guarantee you without Scripture we would never have heard of. They, they simply weren't the biggest things uh, in the world, and from 2,000 years ago, that's all we get is the biggest things. So, okay, well, what's with that? What's that about? Um, and there's ways we can look those up. So there's lots of things that you're going to say. I, I, I want to know more about that. And one question in particular. So what? So what? This is what it says. Once I understand what it means, so what? James says that we are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So I need to be able to take the word and say, what does that mean to me? Right? Now, Dean is married. And when we look at that love your wife, that means there's a very concrete, specific application of that Dean needs to understand. Right? I, too, am married. We're both married to women, which is, I think, a pretty cool thing. However, I'm not married to women. I'm married to Donna. And you're married to Sharon. And, and that means that the so what is going to be a bit different for you, probably, than for me. Because the way you love Sharon today, what her needs are today, is probably not going to be identical to the way I love Donna today. And so we're going to find ourselves studying the same passages of Scripture and agreeing on what it means, because God is an excellent communicator, by the way. There really is little disagreement on what the Bible means among anybody who's actually studied it. I've had the privilege of studying with pretty much every group or people from every group that on the planet that refer to themselves as Christian, uh, and a fair number of cultists. And almost never do we disagree on what it says and means. What we disagree with is what comes next. Or, in a really huge example, is it authoritative? <laughs> you know, okay, I don't care what it says. I want to do what I want to do or what my church says I should do. Well, that's a different story. 
So we need to ask those questions. And then, of course, study is answering them. And it's a lifelong pursuit. And there's no way in the world you're going to have everything about Romans nailed by the time we're done with this class. I guarantee you it. I have been studying the book of Romans for 44 years at a eventually doctoral level. And I don't have it nailed. There's still passages where I, I learn new nuances and in some cases look at it and say, Lord, I've always believed it was this, but I, I don't know that that's accurate. And I have, I've had the extraordinary experience many times of having my understanding of Scripture changed by studying with other people who are also studying and also are challenging me if I am, shall we say, not studying, if I'm simply reading in what I've already decided or already come to. And that's one of the cool things about studying with other people because we all have biases. We all have assumptions. The, the help of studying with other people is that those get challenged. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, where'd you get that? Well, that's what it says. No, it doesn't. It says this. And look at it and go, oh, wow, it does say that. Where did I get this? I usually find out, by the way. It's not that hard to trace my thinking back, get to a certain point and go, that's where I came up with that. And it may be accurate or it may not, but no longer am I going to believe that based on, well, it's just what I believed. I'm going to believe it because I've looked at the word and that's what the word says. Or I'm going to not anymore. And as I said, I've, since coming to North Orange, numerous times changed my mind. None of those, by the way, have anything to do with the gospel because the gospel is so simple and so clear that, once again, nobody really disagrees with the gospel as it's presented in Scripture. There are those who believe there's things they've added to it and that that's okay. And then there are those who believe that's absolutely not okay. But what the Scripture says about the gospel, I don't think anybody disagrees with it. The Roman Catholic Church believes exactly what I believe, teaches it, just not to most people. They teach it in the graduate schools. So we all agree on those things. Our job during this class is going to be to practice that process. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is read it and question it. And one of the questions that will be at the end of every study guide is, what questions would you add? Because your questions won't be the same as mine, and I'm going to try to keep the study guides relatively brief, so I'm not giving you 10 hours worth of stuff to do every week. So if you come up with uh, questions that are different than mine, good. Bring them out. And when I first bring up, are, are, are there any questions that you want to cover tonight, one of the things I would strongly encourage you to do is if you have added a question, um, either because you just saw it as an important question and think it should be discussed, or because you're not sure what it is, what it, what it means, it could be a word, a passage, whatever, um, bring it out. Because if you're thinking that, if you're wrestling with it, I almost guarantee you so are others in the group. Okay? All right. Any questions so far? One of you veterans want to explain what I'm doing right now? 
Yes, I am. What do I count to? Slowly. There's a study that was done when I was a graduate student in adult education at Manhattan State University, uh, no, Kansas State University in Manhattan. <laughs> Excuse me. And they studied everybody from, and their explanation, from volunteer Sunday school teachers to doctoral level professors. All sorts of settings, professional, county extension, everything you could think of, of teachers of adults. And they asked them, well, they didn't ask them, they, they looked. Anytime they asked a question, how long did they wait for an answer before they either gave the answer or gave up and moved on? Anybody want to guess what the average was? Less than two. It was a fraction, but it was less than two seconds. Yeah, we hate silence. <laughs> now, here's the problem. They have, they found, and I have experienced the same thing. I don't have a copy of the study, by the way. I actually learned it from one of the participants in uh, one of the people conducting this study, because I was in, studying in the same department. Um, the average class, when you ask a question like that, people think. Now, thinking, you would think, is not a bad thing in here, right? So if I ask a question and you start thinking about the question, it's not a bad thing. And if I rush, if, I, if I'm so uncomfortable with the sound of thinking, which is no sound, then I cut your thinking short. So instead, I want to give, now I'm not going to wait three or four or five to six minutes unless it's a question that really does take a lot of pondering. And there's times when I've done that. I'll warn you and say, okay, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to sit back in about five minutes, come back to this right now. I just want you to think for that much time, figure this out. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to count to ten. And almost always, if there's going to be a question, it comes in between seven and eight. If I get past eight, very rarely is there a question. But I'll go to ten anyway. But almost always I don't hear one the first six. Unless somebody's already got it and they're just waiting for me to shut up so they can throw it out there. Okay, which is fine. So I will do that a lot. And if you're listening on, online or you're listening to the recording, you're going to hear, I'll, I'll ask a question, and you're going to wonder, uh, what happened? Did he turn it off? Because you know, there's going to be that silence. It's only going to be about 10 seconds. But I will do it every single time, and some of you are going to be going. <laughs> you know, I've had people do that. And, no, it's my pace. You know, I decide how fast Mississippi is said. Okay? All right. So, now, we're going to take about half an hour for some general stuff. First of all, here's a class schedule. Uh, the main thing about the schedule, it lists uh, the date, it lists passages, general term for the passage. But the main thing I want you to see is there's some dates we're not meeting. Those are the FX dates. Um, and I don't want anybody coming here and, where is everybody? What happened? <coughs> you are, whether you have children or not, strongly invited to participate in FX. Um, they usually, uh, I think today, they're starting with a meal on their own. 
They're not trying to cook a, a big meal anymore. Thank you. Um, by the way, if you're ever asked by somebody who's uh, in the class to pick up hard copies, then don't ask me to do it or to remember, because I'll forget it from handing one hand out to the other. Just do it. Grab more than one, and no problem. Um, anyway, uh, encourage you to participate in FX. Um, now, we're talking about Romans. So let's look into Romans and talk a little bit about the background. And I apologize for the print on this. It was supposed to be bigger, but I'm sure you guys will be able to get magnifying glasses and make it work, right? So you got your readers out for a reason. This is a smart man. There you go. All right. Can anybody guess who the letter to the Romans was written to? The Romans. The Romans. Well, actually, it's a little bit more specific. <coughs> it was written to the Christians in Rome. Rome was a city in Italy. Excuse me. At that time, Italy was, a, was not a country. It was a region. Uh, coincidentally, Rome was in the exact same place that Rome's in today. It's one of those ancient cities that we're not wondering where exactly it was. We can go to it, see some of the very buildings that people who would have received this letter may have lived in. Well, the ruins of them, anyway. There were several devastating events uh, between then and now. Um, the author is a fellow named Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, some people say uh, Paul was the name that he took after he became a Christian. That is not true. Read the book of Acts, you'll find he went by Saul for quite a while um, and probably had gone by Paul already. Paul was a Gentile name, Roman name. Saul was a Jewish name. In fact, Saul was the name of the first Jewish king. Right? King Saul. Anybody remember what tribe he was from? I totally apologize for the noise that just went into the microphone. No? The tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, it was a whole different tribe that took over when God removed Saul and put David in, in power. Anybody want to guess what tribe Saul of Tarsus was from? I really set you up pretty easily. Uh, no? Benjamin. <laughs> because he was named after the king. Okay. Now, we actually know quite a bit about this fellow. I will give you a little bit more later. But uh, for now, let's move on. The recipients, uh, the church in Rome. We do know a number of things about this church. Um, unlike the church in Rome, say, 500 years later, when the Roman Catholic Church was formed. Historically, I recognize I just said something that really ticks some people off. If you're one of them, I apologize, but once again, the Bible says you must forgive me. Um, historically, the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist before roughly 500 A.D. Now, the Roman Catholic Church traces its roots all the way back to Peter, whom they claim was the bishop of Rome. The only problem with that is that Peter was never a bishop 
of Rome that we're aware of, and certainly not the bishop, because there was no such thing as a the bishop anywhere in any place of any church in the first century. The concept of the monarchical bishop, one person instead of a group of elders, uh, did not come for another century. So uh, there's no way in the world that happened. Peter was an itinerant, itinerant apostle, just as Paul was. However, he is, as Paul was, connected with the city of Rome, uh, rather unfortunately, because it's where both of them were martyred, or both of them were killed. The, the most people in the city of Rome uh, were slaves. Okay? By far, the majority of people in the city were slaves. Um, there, there were very few citizens, there were a number of freedmen, and then there were an enormous number of slaves. That was simply how the economy went. So, not a big surprise that when the gospel hit the city of Rome, a lot of people responded, and the majority of them were poor people. There were some wealthy ones. Uh, even in scripture, we have the names of one or two from the royal household. But... The majority of people in the first century who were part of the church in Rome were slaves or poor freedmen. Okay? Um, it was, it, by the time this letter was written, it was not very old. Not, no church was very old because the letter was probably written uh, maybe 35 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. Okay? No, I'm sorry, 25 years. Uh, remember, none of those dates, we don't have dates for any of this. And if we did, it wouldn't help because they used a different calendar and uh, there's not a direct translation of calendars. <laughs> so, a fairly new group of Christians, fairly immature and very poor. That means, by the way, many of them would have been very uneducated. Not all. Interestingly enough, a lot of the slaves, particularly in Rome, were well-educated because the Romans relied on Greek slaves as the academic class. Uh, most of the tutors, the, uh, the people who were the academicians, uh, the Romans, they focused on two things, the military and wealth, building wealth. So uh, at this time, at least, the Greeks were the ones that were more the academics, and that maintained even though many of them were slaves. Um, how, the, how the church was founded, uh, we don't really know. There's theories. One is a visit by Peter. There's zero to support that. Almost 100% didn't happen. Uh, the evangelizing by Jews present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that is an extremely strong possibility because in, in that time, Jews were spread all through the Mediterranean world. And they would make a pilgrimage, uh, for many of them a once-in-a-lifetime sort of a thing, because it was very expensive. It took months to do, to get to Jerusalem for Passover. And since they were there for Passover, uh, they wanted to stay. Some of them had family still. They wanted to be in this city that they considered a holy, holy city, rich with history for them still, even by the, at this time. And so they would stay another seven weeks. Um, seven weeks was 49 days, except in the Hebrew counting. Um, from today to tomorrow is two days. It's not 24 hours. They don't care about that. It's not one day because we think hours. It's two days. It's today and tomorrow. So, seven weeks, 49 days, by our count, would be how many days? 
Except, okay, like I said, 49 days by our count. So how many days for them? No. No, it wouldn't double. They would simply add the first day. Because we're going to say, okay, 24 hours, that's one. No, they're going to say 24 hours is two. And keep going. So they would consider seven weeks to be 50 days. Hence, pente, Greek for 50. Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost meant 50 days. And it was a feast that happened seven weeks after Passover. So when the Gospels first presented, seven weeks after Passover, where Jesus was sacrificed, by this time, the 40 days of the resurrection had already come and gone. The ascension had happened. The commissioning of the apostles had happened several days, not a long time, just several days before. And they were told to go wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come on them. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. And so you have all of these pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world, who were all Jews, and so they had the Old Testament background. They understood uh, Peter's presentation of the gospel. This is the Messiah, the one you killed. By the way, there were many of them still from the same mob that had seven weeks earlier cried out for Jesus' blood. And Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. They said, what shall we do, brothers? And he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thousands of them did that right then, and the church was born. It's all recorded in Acts 2. If you continue to read, you'll find that many of them stayed there until the persecution. They thought Jesus was coming back any day. So why go back to Rome, for Pete's sake? That's a hard trip. I'm staying here waiting for Jesus. And so until the persecution came, which was several years later, um, they stayed there. But the persecution did come because the commission was that they were to share the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, which is very hard to do when you're camped out in Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit let it happen, and, and they got scattered. So churches were formed all over the Mediterranean world by people who had come to the Lord in Jerusalem, had grown under the apostles' teaching, and now went out and just started sharing the gospel. By the time uh, Paul and Barnabas started doing the same thing, many of the towns they didn't go to because Paul said he wanted to go not where someone has already planted, but where the seed hasn't been planted yet. So their strategy was, if, if people had already gone out and churches were already formed in places, they'd skip it. They wanted to go places that nobody heard the gospel. And that's why we hear all the stories about them in the book of Acts coming to areas and being the first to present the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Um, another theory, converts from one of the churches founded by Paul. <coughs> Excuse me possible, but given the date, improbable, simply because it takes a while for people to move, and uh, part of this time, people were moving out, not into Rome, because uh, one of the persecutions that was coming was targeted at Jews. Okay. By the way, this whole time, uh, if you've ever read Roman history, the, the emperors were coming and going, I mean, they were changing emperors like underwear. It was amazing. And the emperor almost was synonymous with nuts. 
this is, these are the days not only of Nero, but Caligula and a number of others who made Nero look totally normal. Okay? Um, and even those who were, at least probably in terms of mental health, normal, like Claudius, were from a whole different world. Their values were entirely different, and they fought nothing of genocide because Rome was built on genocide. They, they felt a God's-given, and believe in Yahweh, but a God's-given mandate for Rome to control the world, and if any other race got in the way, no problem, get rid of it. So, I mean, the values are just so different than ours. The date, approximately mid-50s. I put 56 here. You'll see others put 54. Uh, when you see a date translating a first century date to today's, and it's, if it's actually within five or ten years, uh, whoever's doing it is doing fantastic. Because, again, there's calendar changes and things like that that make it almost impossible to nail it down any closer. The only times we can do that, we don't really know the dates, but there's times we can nail events down closer because we've got events that have been recorded by numerous other historians because they were literally world-changing events. Um, and we can uh, then connect some of the events in Scripture with those. So it still doesn't tell specific dates. It just helps us build the chronology. Why was it written? Basically, to give a basic introduction to Paul's teaching, some say for fundraising, um, he does mention he would like to come and maybe be helped on his way. Because remember, Paul didn't really want to go places where uh, others had already built a church. Paul wanted to go where it wasn't. And one of his ambitions was originally to go uh, share the gospel with the royal family in Rome. This is why he allowed himself to be arrested at the end of the book of Acts. And he did. I mean, he actually contrived the arrest. They were trying to get rid of him. They didn't want the headache of his arrest. He's the one who finally, when it looked like he wasn't going to get sent to Rome, said, I appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, all right, that's done. And uh, he got free passage, uh, albeit under arrest, but free passage to go to Rome and a hearing before the imperial court. Um, we know that he had a very strong uh, desire to go beyond and go to what we would call Iberia, uh, today's Spain, Portugal, France. We don't believe he ever made it um, from what we can tell from history. Uh, the, the New Testament stops before his death, but uh, from what we can tell, uh, unfortunately he was killed pretty quick after the events that describe him going to Rome. Uh, the background, it's one of 13 letters of Paul to individuals and churches. It's one of two letters written to a place that Paul had never been. Most of the places, or the letters Paul wrote, were to places where he had planted churches and had very deep contacts. Uh, Paul was possibly in Corinth at the time, thinking of traveling to Spain or Rome. Uh, I'm going to give you another handout. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. It just gives a chronology of his life that says... Um, uh, Romans written possibly from Achaia. Achaia was the region the city of Corinth was in. Um, probably carried and delivered by Phoebe. Um, I say probably because if, when you read the personal remarks at the end of the letters, you get a lot of hints about that sort of a thing, both the beginning and the end of the letters. Some key passages, and these are just some, uh, I, I will confess, I threw these in. 
So I guess that means they're key to me. Uh, one of them is what's called the Roman Road. Uh, anybody know what the Roman Road is? Okay, Roman Road is simply a group of passages that has been used for centuries as anchors for sharing the gospel. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why do we need Jesus? Because all have sinned. Fallen short, have you ever sinned? Almost nobody will say no to that. Okay, but so what? Well, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're all sinners, but that's, that's not just, okay, but we're all sinners. No, because we're all sinners, we're all condemned. That's how death came. That's how eternal destruction comes. But the free gift that's offered to us is eternal life through Jesus. And there is, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 10, 9, and 10. Whoever confesses with his mouth, believes in his heart, that Jesus is Lord, is saved. Okay. Um, a very misunderstood passage, unfortunately. Uh, Romans 6, 3 is often added in um, because of Peter's sermon and because of Jesus' command. And this one talks about baptism. Okay. So it's a way of just kind of documenting from one book very specific points to help somebody make a decision to accept Jesus as Lord and know what to do about it. Uh, Paul's faith and life. Romans 7. Fascinating when we get to this. Uh, here's a guy who is by far the best known Christian in history and responsible for writing half of the New Testament, for planting churches throughout the Mediterranean world for raising people from the dead, for Pete's sake. Even though, as I like to point out, one of those at least was bored to death because of him. But still, I mean, I've bored people. I haven't bored them to death. And if, if you happen to die because you're so bored from my teaching, you're pretty well with the Lord because there's nothing I can do about it. And Paul literally bored a guy to death. He fell out of an upper window and broke his neck, apparently. That's... We know he died. He doesn't say he broke his neck. <laughs> Paul raised him from the dead. Here's this guy who's that spiritual, that amazing, that powerful, saying things like, whatever I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. I'm a wretch. And that, by the way, is the immediate verse before, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't laying out a theological treatise when he said that. He was referring to himself. As bad as I am, as hung up as I am, there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ. And, of course, sharing that for others. And then spiritual life, Romans 12, beginning with giving yourself as a living sacrifice. Okay. Um, there's a whole lot more. I'm going to give you... Uh, I'm going to hold that. I'm going to give you a chronology of the life of Paul, and then I want to spend just a little bit of time actually in the Word. From now on, we'll spend all the time in the Word, but because I'm basing this on the work that you've already done, and because I haven't given you anything to do yet, um, that makes it hard to do that tonight.
Okay, I'm not going to go over this one, just giving it to you for your benefit. If you've got any questions on any of this stuff, by the way, when I ask you any given week if you have questions, that's not just for that passage, that's for anything we've already covered. Um, I won't do necessarily anything we're going to cover. <laughs> Excuse me, because I'm not going to jump ahead all the time. Uh, but if something comes to you as you're studying through and you remember, wait a minute, two weeks ago it said this and now it's this, or you just thought about two weeks ago it's this and I never even realized it, but now it's hitting me, bring it up. There's nothing in the world wrong with us backtracking a little and deepening the context. Okay, let's go into um, Romans 1. I'm going to be reading out of New American Standard. Um, you're, you're free to read out of whichever you would like. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You'll notice, by the way, there's no period, and uh, there hasn't been yet, um, the Greek that is being translated here has no punctuation at all. So Paul gets a little bit of a bad rap for making run-on sentences. Well, everybody had run-on sentences because there was no punctuation, there was no periods or ends of sentences. But uh, the translators are the ones who are doing this. Paul identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. The word is doulos. Um, bondservant is a, is a Hebrew concept. Okay. Um, if doulos was being strictly used in a Greek context, it would simply mean slave. <laughs> the difference is a bondservant um, in, in the Jewish culture was somebody who was either sold into servitude for a specific period of time, could never be more than seven years, um, in order to work off a debt, or somebody who had been and at the end of that time had said, I got it good. I don't want to leave. Maybe they just realized they're being provided for very well. The master, um, which, again, we, ha we have a very unfortunate history in our country with regard to slavery that makes it hard to uh, use some of these words in ways that have different connotations. But master would not have been master the way we understand it from the Old South, or for that matter, for the Romans and Greeks. Who, who did practice absolute slavery. Uh, for the Jews, it was a boss. He, he, was, he was more than a boss in terms of the way we would use, but he did not have life and death authority. The laws gave many rights to the bondservants. The key here is that a bondservant who had been a servant for more than seven years, Paul had been now for a decade or two, depending on when you date this letter, was a bondservant because he chose to be because he was so taken with this boss, this master, that he wanted to serve that person forever. And so Paul's making a statement with that. He was called an apostle. The word apostle literally translates missionary, somebody who's been given a mission and sent out. And Paul, 
was called to be that. If you look into the book of Acts, you'll find at the very beginning an account I personally believe was another account of Peter's knee-jerk uh, response because Judas had died. There were 12 apostles. 12 was a pretty important number in Jewish uh, history. And um, Judas had killed himself after betraying Jesus. So now there's only 11. Peter says, hey, there's got to be 12. Now, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit told Peter to do that. It does say that in other places, but it doesn't say it here. Peter decided there needs to be 12. And they went through this interesting process where they drew lots and picked a guy named Matthias, whom we never hear about again, ever. And then Jesus chooses Paul. Now, maybe Paul was the 13th and just a weird apostle, or maybe Jesus had in mind all the time that Paul would be the 12th. One way or the other, his apostleship was accepted on a par with their own by the other apostles. Now, that took a little bit, but it did happen. And in fact, there were times where uh, Paul actually practiced more authority. In the, in the Galatian letter, he accounts, uh, recounts himself how he publicly chews Peter out for uh, his hypocrisy in uh, insisting that Gentile Christians obey the law, have to become Jews first. And the reason that was so important is because that was one of the times the Holy Spirit said, go do this. Peter was the first one to see a Gentile Christian become a Gentile become a Christian without becoming Jewish. He was the one who said, but no, God wants this to happen, and then later went back on it. Paul just wouldn't let him get away with it. So Paul is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand to his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Um, talks about Jesus as a descendant of David according to the flesh. I don't think anybody has a real question about that. Um, and who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Uh, if you want to read more about what that means theologically, read the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians by Paul. Okay. Verse 7, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, um, is anybody else reading New American Standard? Okay. When I said called as saints, what, what is in the text? Is there anything different about called as saints? Hmm? Okay. Verse 7. What is the word as printed with? Italics. Now, we can play the game, which we get into too often, of, well, I'll just decide what that means. Italics is to set it apart, obviously to emphasize something, but what something? If you read the translator's notes of the American Standard Translation, what you're going to find is italics means it wasn't there. It's not part of the text. It's added in the translation to help it make sense in English. So here's what really was written. They weren't called as saints. They were called saints. Okay? Saints simply meant holy ones. One who was set apart and purified for God's own use. Had nothing to do with their own spiritual worthiness and still doesn't. So those, those uh, traditions, uh, which includes not only the Orthodox, Coptic, 
Roman Catholic, but a number of, uh, of what are called Protestant churches who emphasize the saints um, historically and biblically are all wet. And by the way, they agree with that historically and biblically, but, quote, we changed it. Okay? Uh, because they believe they have the right to do that. We don't. We are the saints, just like they were. Any Christian is called, set apart, purified, as the property of God, for God's specific use. Very important passage there. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, by the way, whatever Paul says the whole world, that meant the Roman world. And that's, that, that's a figure of speech that was used very, very consistently, almost uh, without exception for all cultures within the Mediterranean world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayer, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And by the way, there's a period now. That's the second one. So we can take a break. <sighs> Breathe. Okay. Paul now uh, makes mention of a prayer. This is, again, a very common thing that Paul does at the beginning of a letter. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, uh, rooted, strengthened, is the word established. Uh, the words, by the way, there is no word that means spiritual gift. There is no one word. This is the only passage where the words gift and spirit thing are used together. In other passages, it is one or the other, and we sort of write our theology back into it. Um, sometimes accurately, sometimes not so much. Uh, but Paul says, there's, there's things that I would like to impart to you and, and help you to uh, establish or deepen or uh, root your faith better. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you, and I've been prevented so far. Interesting phrase, because Paul recognizes not only worldly powers, but spiritual powers in the unfolding of the gospel. And in another passage, talks about wanting to go to a certain place and says, Satan has prevented me. Um, now, how he did that, no one knows. Um, in the end, God allows this or doesn't. God does not... God's plans are never thwarted by Satan, so clearly uh, God used Paul as he wanted to be, or wanted him to be, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay. Excuse me, there's a bit of a, an introduction. Point out a couple of real brief things, and then we'll be done for today. Go back to verse 7. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a formula that is included in every letter Paul wrote. Sometimes he adds mercy. Always grace and peace. So it, it's, it's kind of a signature of his that any letter that he writes is going to have that particular, uh, if you will, benediction or greeting. Um, another thing is Paul makes it very clear that he wants to go to them, but he can't. And so he's writing to them to, in essence, let them know who he is and what he teaches. 
he of course knows some of them because people do travel, but uh, he has not had the opportunity to meet the people in the church itself. Um, he talks about having fruit among them as the rest of the Gentiles. And that's probably the most significant statement in this because Paul's ministry, ironically, and we'll talk about why the irony, in fact, here's another assignment for you on top of the study guide. <laughs> it's entirely fun, so of course it is not burdensome. Why is it ironic that Paul says that he wants to have fruit among them as he has the rest of the Gentiles? Why is it ironic that Paul's ministry is centered on the Gentiles? We will open with that next week, and next week we will cover a longer passage and, frankly, deeper, but we will not do all the rest of the intro stuff. So from now on, we will spend almost 100% of our time in the Word. Okay? Any questions? Next week we're also going to talk, by the way, about electronic uh, resources. So those of you who are not using a paid um, study tool, like Logos or PC Study Bible or something, um, please make a note of the ones you are using. And if you haven't used it for a while, double check it. One of the reasons I don't usually put it out is because I don't use them a lot. And what I have found is if I wait six months, they've changed or even gone off. Line. So um, I want to be able to share a number of the different online resources that are free. And then I'll share two of them that are not at all free, but are extremely useful if you want to invest some money. All right? Thank you, guys. I'll see you next week at 7 on Tuesday. Is that right? every 28th, right? Okay. The Gentile part. That's, that's, and why is that ironic? Thank you, guys.